The scripture reading today is from the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. You can find it printed on page 10 of your worship folder. That day, a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women. He committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went from place to place, proclaiming the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds with one accord listened eagerly to what was said by Philip, hearing and seeing the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud shrieks, came out of many who were possessed, and many others who were paralyzed or lame were cured. So there was great joy in that city. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. God be with us now. However, we find ourselves in this room this morning, as we look at this ancient story, um, it's a story of great hardship, but also great joy, and a story of crossing boundaries, um, religious, cultural, historic boundaries and wounds. Um, Help us join the characters in this story who are meeting the Messiah Jesus the Messiah in a new way. Let us meet Jesus the Messiah in a new way this morning, we pray. In his name, amen. Well, good morning, guys. Uh, We are a few weeks now into our study on friendship with the city. And it's it's more than just a focus for this winter. It's actually part, and you, you may have gathered this over the last several months, it's part of a spiritual formation path that we're building out as a church friendship with God, friendship with the city, friendship with our neighbors, and you're going to see this continue to be interwoven into everything we're doing as a church in the months and the years ahead. But for, but for these few weeks, really looking at what it means to be friends with the place where we live, it's interesting to me to reflecting on City Church, because on the one hand, uh, City Church is definitely a church that's always prioritized being friends with the city. I mean, we put city in the name, like we're for the city. But part of that has meant we've tried to listen closely to the city over the years. And we learn more and more about how far we have to go to really be the church that San Francisco needs. And that's the nature of this whole friendship thing, is that it's a two-way street. We listen to the city. The city has gifts and beauty and wisdom to offer us, even as a community of Jesus followers. And so our goal isn't so much to dominate the city with our message about Jesus, but to join the city in all of its beauty, its brokenness, its wisdom, its gifts, and to take the story of Jesus and offer it to the city of San Francisco in a reciprocal relationship. That's the big idea of what we're looking at in different ways. And here, today, we look at a character named Philip, a leader in the early church who actually crosses some major boundaries, cultural, religious, historical boundaries, to take the message of Jesus 
to a place, to a city that no Jerusalem Jew would normally go, Samaria. So we'll look at that closely. But it starts off, in verse 1, it starts off with a great kind of violent storm of persecution, and you see it there. Verse 1 says, that day a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered. They were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women. He committed them to prison. Okay, just a little context to set up our story about Philip, that Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, was basically the exclusive center, the exclusive center of the early church at that point. It was a very Hebrew, very Jewish, Jerusalem-based group of Jesus followers. But the chapter before, chapter 7, that all begins to shift. And it begins to shift pretty suddenly, pretty violently, because one of the other early church leaders alongside Philip, his name was Stephen, was preaching about Jesus, and he was getting a little too popular. He was threatening the religious establishment at the time, and they trumped up a bunch of false charges against him about being a blasphemer, about really um, condemning his own faith, the Jewish religion, which is not what he was doing. He was preaching Jesus. A mob encircles Stephen and demands that he defend himself. And in defending himself, he does the one thing that you could not do to that group in that day. He challenges the validity of the temple or at least their understanding of it. And the way he does that, he actually quotes the prophets. So he's quoting straight from their own prophets saying, you think God lives in that house that you built, like God lives exclusively there. But that that's not possible. And he quotes Isaiah saying, God says, you know, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. How can you possibly build a house in which I could be contained or I could dwell? And that's the line challenging the temple that you just couldn't cross. It's the same thing, exact same thing that got Jesus killed. If you remember, right near the end of Jesus' ministry, right before he's arrested, he goes into the temple, challenges the whole system there. The crowd gets amped up in a very violent way, stones Stephen. And that stoning, that violence that begins to rise up there, unleashes a storm of persecution and violence against the early church in Jerusalem there. And you see Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who later becomes the Apostle Paul, but right here in this chapter, he's the captain of the persecution. He's Saul the terrorizer going after Christians, throwing them in prison. And so we see this interesting word. It says that all of the disciples, except for the 12 apostles, the 12 leaders, all of the rest were scattered. They were scattered into the countryside and into Samaria. And I want to work with that word scattered just a little bit because it's, it's fascinating. Um, I love words like this that actually have a range of meaning and have very distinct images behind them because there's a lot of ways to say scattered in the Greek. There's a lot of ways to describe something being broken apart or spread out. But the word that's used here, and it's often used to describe how God sends his people into the world, the word is, has a very distinct mental image behind it, and it's that of seed, seeds 
being thrown out, seeds being spread out. It actually means to throw seeds. So it's an intentional word. It's a word that presupposes a subject, God, spreading people out, planting them in new places. So they were scattered. But it came, it happened because of this storm of persecution. You see, Jesus, Jesus had told the disciples right before he left, and it's in Acts 1, he said, look, after I leave, you're going to um, receive power from the Holy Spirit, and then you're going to go throughout all of Jerusalem and all of Samaria, and you're going to go and you're going to take the message of my story into the rest of the world. They were told that, but I've got to believe that when they first received that instruction, knowledge from Jesus, they didn't think it was going to happen this way. But I think we know from our own lives, that's often how it happens, that it takes a severe push. It takes something maybe unexpected, unpleasant, unwelcome, to move us out of our comfort zone, to move us out of our protected, known, kind of certain communities. And that's what happens here. And Richard Rohr comments on that dynamic in the Christian life, in the spiritual life, where he says, setting out, moving out into something new, is always a leap of faith. It's always a leap of faith. It's a risk in the deepest sense of the term. And yet, it's an adventure too. The familiar and the habitual are so falsely reassuring and most of us make our homes there permanently. The new is always, by definition, unfamiliar and untested. So God, life, destiny, suffering have to give us a push, usually a big one, or we will not go. We usually need a push. We usually need to be scattered, sometimes against our preference, to move into the place that God wants to replant us. So maybe even now, think about how you were brought to San Francisco, realizing that most of us didn't grow up here, or how you ended up here at City Church. What kind of life change happened that you found this place as a church? For me, for me, I ended up, I thought about this a little bit the last week, I ended up in San Francisco, I ended up at City Church because of a motorcycle accident. Now, I know in your mind right now, you're picturing a motorcycle accident, you could be thinking, well, that sounds horrible. Um, or you could be thinking, Jonathan, you, you just have never seen you as a person who rides a motorcycle. Um, you would not be wrong about that. Um, <laughs> so this is not going to be a glory story of some awesome motorcycle, former existence of mine, or some glorious accident. Um, this was the most humiliating motorcycle accident probably, or definitely that I've ever seen, probably that may, may have ever happened. So real quick, I'll try to do this quickly. Go back to 2009. I'm looking for a job in a church, interviewing a lot of places on the West Coast. I had interviewed at City Church. It looked pretty promising, but they were taking forever, <laughs> forever to get back to me. Some things may, might not change, right? <laughs> so, um, all right, in the midst of that, my wife and I had made a couple trips to Orange County, and um, I was on the cusp of receiving an offer uh, to be a pastor there. 
a really different kind of church, a really different kind of city than San Francisco. Um, so that, had, that was in play, and I thought that's where we were going. We kind of made the decision, like, this is where we're headed. And on this particular day, I'm riding around Fort Lauderdale, Florida, which I lived at the time, on my motorcycle. Now, if you know anything about different styles of motorcycle, um, you know there's this one style called a cafe racer. And I had this Triumph version of that, a cafe racer. But the thing is, for me, I literally only used it to go to cafes. That's it. Okay? I was a total poser of a motorcycle enthusiast. Um, so I'm expecting a call that day from this search committee of the church in Orange County. And it's, you know, Florida, it's warm. I'm sort of enjoying my last probably few weeks there, heading from one cafe to another, no joke, um, maybe to take the call. Going through an intersection, I had the green light, I was following all the rules, and then all of a sudden, as I'm crossing the other side of the intersection, I'm hit. But it wasn't from another car, or like another motorcycle, or anything you'd expect. I was hit by two kids on a BMX bike, right in my side. Now, they were fine. I don't want to paint a picture of people, all kid, children getting hurt, and they weren't really kids. They were like 20 years old. Oh, two 20-year-olds riding the same BMX bike. <laughs> like one on the handlebars. And for some reason, I still don't know, they go straight against oncoming traffic into my lane. And I remember that moment, total shock, and like arms kind of in my space and legs and these screams. They're all guys, but the screams were like childish, like, like high-pitched screams. And I go flying and I'm just thinking, what on earth is happening here? And I hit the ground and that, man, pavement is hard. And if you've had bike accidents and all that, you know what I mean. <sighs> kind of roll, do that quick assessment. Am I basically okay? Well, I'm not dead. I'm all right. Pull myself to the curb. Now, I'm hurt. I didn't know it at that moment. I had actually broken this wrist, and this shoulder was separated. So there's a lot of pain that's beginning to build up. And I pull myself over to the curb, but I know I'm basically okay. And the phone rings. <laughs> and it's the Orange County Church. And I answered it. just like sitting there, and they're like, we're offering you the job, and they're like, do you accept? And I'm like, yeah, but can I call you back? But, so I, I initially accepted. Now what happened, when I go to the doctor, I realized like my wrist was going to need some work, it was going to take some time. It opened up this delay, and that delay, I mean, I'm not stretching reality or facts here, that specific delay of about six weeks, let City Church catch up, and then open up the opportunity here. And there's more to it. I mean, I could go into more details of why. I think I probably should have listened to my wife because she was not as enthused about the Orange County job as maybe I was. Um, and we both wanted to be in San Francisco. But that thing, that kind of harsh circumstance, that surprise, that, that sort of imposed suffering, that scattering onto like the streets of Fort Lauderdale and being scattered into San Francisco was not something I would have chosen, but it's very much how I ended up here. I needed a push in a different direction, and God sent it by two kids on a BMX bike. <laughs> and so we are here. We ended up here, and we love it. Um, but I think it's worth reflecting in your own life on the things that are scattering you, even, even now, even right now in your life. The pressures, the challenges, maybe the unwelcome changes that you didn't see coming, 
that at the initial phase feel simply like suffering, but then often down the road, you get a year or two or five years down the road, you can easily see with that benefit of hindsight what God was really up to. Scattering you like a seed to be planted somewhere else and to start to grow again. So where do you need faith right now in your life? And I imagine Philip needed a sense of faith as he's leaving to go to Samaria to believe that God was really up to something new and good. Now, in our story today, it's shocking that Philip would even go there. Now, yes, Jesus said you need to go to Samaria, uh, but the truth was no Jews would ever purposely, no Jerusalem Jews would ever purposely go to Samaria. There was an ancient, severe rift between these people, severe disrespect. And it, wasn't, it was a rivalry, but it wasn't the kind of rivalry that, you know, like America has with Russia or sometimes with China, where there's like a lot of deep respect and even kind of fear of each other. There was just loathing of each other because it was based in a very long, multi-hundred year fallout of, of a family. And you may have heard some of this before, and I'll try to just trace it real quick to give just enough context to know what's going on here. But about 900 years earlier, the Samaritans and the Jews were all one nation. But the northern tribes of Israel, they break off, and they establish their own rival capital called Samaria against Jerusalem. And then a couple hundred years after that, that northern kingdom is conquered by the empire of Assyria. And the Assyrians deport a bunch of them and force a lot of intermarriage in the Samaritan people. So now they're no longer pure tribal Jews, Israelites anymore. And in that era, and in their, that kind of religious system, that was a big deal. A couple hundred years later, the lower, the uh, southern kingdom of, Jeru of Jerusalem and Judah was taken off to Babylon. When they get to come back to Jerusalem, now this is the thing, this is one of the, the harshest um, breaches of their relationship that occurred. It's in the 500s BC. When they came back to Jerusalem, they needed to rebuild the Jerusalem temple. And in an act of reconciliation, the Samaritans came down and offered to help rebuild the Jerusalem temple. That's not in the Bible, but it's in recorded history. The Samaritans came down to offer to help rebuild the Jerusalem temple you know, reaching out, trying to bridge this massive difference, this chasm that, that existed between them. And the Jews said, no. The Jerusalem Jews said, we don't want your help. So they went back up north. And then a couple hundred years later after that, a high priest of Jerusalem took an army up to Samaria and destroyed their temple. So this is like deep, deep family rivalry gone horribly wrong, deep wounds. And Philip goes there. I mean, I think on the one hand, he had spent time with Jesus. On the other hand, he'd been um, impacted by the Holy Spirit. I'm sure his own cultural biases were beginning to loosen. But one little note I want to point out is that Philip himself was actually a Hellenistic Jew, meaning he was a Jew by religion and by race, but culturally he was one of the groups of the early church that was way more uh, Greek by culture. And, and knowledge and training and language um, than the Jerusalem Jews would have been. 
And I think somewhere in there is an interesting insight that his own cultural upbringing was preparing him to cross boundaries that needed to be crossed. But he goes to Samaria, and when he gets there, he enters into their story. He doesn't show up there and offer them a three-step plan for how to become better Jews again, a three-step plan for how to reconcile or rejoin an old story. He doesn't do that. He goes there and he preaches the Messiah. And there's a subtle shift in our text that kind of emphasizes that he's preaching the Messiah. And we need to zone in on that. Verse 4, he says, Those who were scattered went from place to place proclaiming the word. And Philip went down to Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. What's really interesting when you dig into Samaritan history and Samaritan theology is they were actually waiting for their own Messiah. And it wasn't completely a separate story than that of the Jews because they shared a few pieces of the same religion. The Samaritans had the five books of Moses and they followed that and that was about it. And they kind of built up a religion that was really different than the rest of Judaism. But they had the five books of Moses and there was a promise in Deuteronomy that one day God would send a prophet that was a lot like Moses, a great leader, a deliverer. But they had built up their own story around that, and they had named this Messiah the Tahib, the Restorer. They were waiting for this figure, this, this, this deliverer, to come along, the Restorer, that would be their Messiah. And you see an indication of this, too, in John 4, Jesus is talking with the Samaritan woman at the well, a very famous passage that I think was preached on not too long ago here. And the woman says to Jesus, I know one day the Messiah will come. And she's referring to their Messiah, the Tahib. And he will explain everything to us. He will explain everything to us. And Jesus says, I'm that person. And Philip is now here in Samaria saying, Jesus is your Messiah, he's your Tahib, he's your restorer. And he offers them a Jesus that actually enters into their Samaritan story. That this Jesus, this restorer, this one who would explain everything, this one who would answer their ancient burning questions and heal their collective story, would heal what I believe would have been some internalized identity as religious outcasts and even so-called half-breeds because that's what the Jews called them. The one who would explain everything, would give meaning to their story and their exile and their rejection by their Jewish cousins and would restore their sense of home and belonging and welcome and full acceptance in God. Philip offers them that Jesus, the restorer, and crosses 900 years of religious and relational chasm to bring them that story. And as they meet Jesus in their own story, new life and new joy breaks out. Verse 6, it says, they listened eagerly to what was said by Philip, and then all kinds of healing and freedom even supernatural healing and freedom, breaks out. And then at the end, the result, the ultimate result result is great joy. It was great joy. 
I mean, what if that, what if joy was how we judged our success, if you want to call it success, as a church? What if exponentially increasing a city's joy was how we measured if a church was doing the work of Jesus in a city? But this week, what if you began to think a bit about the cultural boundaries, the thresholds, the frontiers that maybe God's calling you to step across in your own life, to be a friend to somebody in the city, or to be a friend even to somebody in this, in this church? Because something really cool and really unique is happening here in City Church. Where over time, we are finding ourselves being a community made up of really different kinds of people with different life backgrounds and different sort of psycho-spiritual questions. We're becoming, I think, a beautifully eclectic group of people, young, older, gay, straight, traditional families, non-traditional families, some politically, socially progressive, some more politically, socially conservative, San Francisco transplants, a lot of us, but an increasing number of people who grew up here in the city. And then not to mention the really important racial and cultural differences that we bring into this room. And when we look at that, congregants, elders, staff, look at that, it's sometimes easy to say, man, there's like four or five different congregations that make up City Church. And in a sense, that's true. And in a sense, you could say that that's a challenge. And it does open up opportunities. But it's a gift. And it's not all that common in the American church or in many churches. And the truth is, we in all our varying differences, really need each other. We need to know each other's stories. We need to be able to cross those differences, sometimes subtle, sometimes pretty deep, that make us different from one another. So maybe this week, think about who even in this church you've been putting off reaching out to. Maybe just invite somebody for coffee for no other reason than just talking about life and catching up. And I would love to normalize the fact that we can all reach out to each other and set up coffees or dinners or time together with no agenda, no purpose except to get to know each other. And you know, as a word of encouragement, and being somebody who, like, at times has found it hard to cross religious boundaries, have hard to cross social boundaries. You know, it's encouraging to me that I think we all already know how to do this. You already know. Because children know, especially young children, they know how to do this all the time. My family's had this opportunity um, to travel a bit as our kids got a little older the last couple years. And there's a particular playground in, in Paris, which sounds extravagant. We're talking like airplane miles in a tiny apartment in a pretty middle-class part of Paris, but cool. And a playground 
where we'll go. We've been there quite a few times, this playground. And on that playground are typical Parisian families, Algerian, more recent immigrant families, and then like my kids. And the adults all kind of stay in their lanes and sort of do their polite thing. My kids, who can maybe speak eight words of French, jump in and start playing together. And it doesn't matter what race or language, they don't have any words to communicate. The cultural differences are very real and very distinct, and they just take off playing, creating all kinds of games with no problem at all. When you were a child, you knew how to do that without any effort. And as we get older, we actually forget. As we get older, we encounter a certain kind of like amnesia. Or we paint over a lot of that with highly developed egos. So part of the Holy Spirit's work in our life is not just to mature us as good, mature Christians who know how to live or know a lot about Jesus. Part of it is to make us younger, to help our hearts grow younger even as we grow older in age. So my prayer, my hope is that we can learn from Philip, who only shows up here for a couple chapters, and he is kind of exits the scene, and the Apostle Paul comes on the scene. But that we can learn from Philip as the one, the first one, the first disciple who really crossed the boundaries and went to a deep place of rivalry and bridged that divide and brought a Jesus, the restorer, that entered the Samaritan's own story. I'm going to close with a poem. It's a poem for living courageously, or I would say maybe a poem for being scattered like seeds. It's in your worship folder just as an encouragement to live this way. It's in the middle on page one by Rilke, where he says, God speaks to us, God speaks to each of us as he makes us, then walks with us silently out of the night, and these are the words we dimly hear. You, sent out beyond your recall, go to the limits of your longing, embody me, Flare up like a flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. Let's pray. God, let this be our prayer this week, that we can take your hand to live as scattered seeds in this city where you've sent us, where you've planted us. Give us the courage to enter the stories of others. Give us the courage to live in a way where we're making big circles you can move in. To find deep joy in you and with those you're placing in our life every day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.